This morning uh, is Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, and uh, let me read it for us as we see these these two gospel-worthy examples. Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to me in my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Would you join me in prayer as we turn to God's word? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is pure and true and holy and righteous. Thank you that it speaks to us, that it's living and active, that it goes out from your mouth and does not return empty, but it accomplishes what it is set out to do. Father, that's what we want this morning. Lord, would your word accomplish its purposes in my heart, in our hearts, in our church? Father, would you um, take my words that I have prepared um, and use them, God, that they might be faithful to your word and that you would, uh, that you would change us, transform us by your word, that we would leave from this place um, renewed and refreshed and restored and shaped more and more to the image of Christ. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, and and I hope you got the sense as we read through it, um, more than just travel plans. Two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and the only command in this whole passage shows up, verse 29 Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Honor, respect, hold them in high regard. And I think if we're tracking with the logic of this passage, um, we're right to imply emulate. Walk in their example. As I mentioned earlier, um, these are the last verses in this section on on the unity of the church. Um, Paul started this section back in chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, and, and the more we've kind of walked through this section of Scripture, um, the more amazed I have been at that first verse and, and all that flows out from it. 127, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What a beautiful picture of the church. He repeats himself again in Philippians 2.2. He says, Complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We have been so uh, richly blessed with God's word. And as we've been going through this, um, I have been so encouraged 
coming to this kind of deeper, more personal understanding of what the church is to be. Standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel um, has, been, has been rich and, 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 and growing me in, in my understanding of what the church ought to be and, and in my love for the church. And I, and I hope you've experienced that as well. And I think I would be remiss to finish this section without just stopping to acknowledge, church, you do this well. This stuff is happening among us, and I love to see that. Um, Paul says to the Philippians, make my joy complete in, in being this kind of church. And, uh, and I just want to say, I have so much joy in seeing our church walk these things out and, and live in these things. Uh, and, and it's a pleasure to see. It's exciting to see. Um, when people come to visit the first time, and if they put their name in the contact folder, I'm going to give them a call Tuesday afternoon. Just check in. How was your experience? Do you have any questions? Um, and, and, and consistently I hear back, I felt so welcomed. I felt loved. Um, people came and talked to me. That's awesome. I was talking with uh, John Flood just last week. He gave me permission to share this, but that was huge for him as he came in and got to know people and found a family and people that loved him immediately and, and cared for him and would walk alongside him. Just this last um, week again, consistently, week after week, throughout the week, um, you, you need to know if, if kind of everybody comes, um, those that are gathered here on Sunday morning, about 80% of you are gathered again throughout the week um, in small groups, which, um, boy, if you haven't been a part of small groups, it's not just a, a coffee time and, and, uh, uh, and a trite Bible study. Uh, it's digging into God's word. Is What does this mean in your life? It's breaking out afterwards, men and women, to say, are you growing in the Lord? What's God doing in your heart? How are you pursuing him this week and spurring one another on? It's, it's striving together side by side in real meaningful ways. That's where the rubber meets the road, bearing one another's burdens and, and growing together. Um, just an an awesome thing to be a part of. And it's just a joy and a blessing as a pastor, uh, and I know the other elders would say, say the same thing, being a part of this, this family as we walk in love together, striving together. Um, so again, I, I totally understand what Paul's saying. Make my joy complete. Um, it's, it's incredible. But let's not take that as an excuse to, to let up or to take it for granted. Um, be casual about it. Let's take that as an encouragement to strive all the more, to increase and, and, and excel in this all the more. And, and, and as we look at these two examples of humble servants and the characteristics in their lives, um, we ought to be seeking to emulate this, to press on, um, to grow in this. And so uh, the first example is, is Timothy. Verses 19 to 24, we see Timothy, the genuine servant. The genuine servant. Paul transitions here saying, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you. Um, this is, these are Paul's plans. I, I think this is, this is a great little example here if you want to ask about how do we make decisions and plans in life. Um, Paul is planning this. This is my, I've thought this out. This is my strategy. Um, he takes no, there's, there's no shame in that. Um, but he recognizes God's plans are higher and so I have it an open hand. This is what I hope to do and, and, that, and that's in the Lord. However, he, if he, if he uh, allows that to be fulfilled, but to send Timothy to you soon that I may be cheered by news of him. Um, I, I think this connects back to that idea of make my joy complete as you live in unity together. Um, 
once we get down to chapter 4, we're going to meet these two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, uh, who are not walking together, striving side by side. There's a quarrel between them. Um, they were not in unity. And so I think this is Paul kind of putting the pressure on. This is, this is mom saying, go tuck yourself into bed. I'm going to check on you in five minutes, right? Um, get along. I'll be there soon to see how things are going. I'm sending Timothy. And I hope that he will bring good news. I hope that he was, his news will cheer my heart. Down in 23 then, he tells him a little more detail. Um, Paul is waiting um, to send Timothy until he knows what's going on with his own trial. Um, I, I want to send him with some real kind of concrete news about how I'm doing. And, and then I will send him. In verse 24, he adds um, that he's hoping, again, in the Lord, um, that he'll be able to visit them personally as well. So there's the picture. He's sending Epaphroditus, now carrying the letter. Timothy, hopefully soon, and himself to follow um, in the near future. Scripture tells us, uh, sorry, Scripture doesn't tell us, um, but we, best we can tell from history is that Paul was uh, beheaded kind of two to four years after the writing of this letter. Um, that uh, in the Lord, um, the Lord said, no, you're coming home with me. And, uh, and he never made that return visit. Epaphroditus certainly did, carrying this letter, and so far as we know, Timothy as well made his visit um, to Philippi. Uh, but the point is not the travel plans. The point is the character of these two examples that Paul puts forward. So first is Timothy, um, probably the most trusted companion of Paul. Uh, if you know Timothy's story, um, he grew up in Lystra, in, in Galatia, modern-day Turkey. So if you have... Um, Israel, I do this for your way. So you have Israel, Jerusalem here in the, in the Mediterranean Sea. He goes up around and, and it's up on top in, in modern day Turkey is where uh, Timothy grew up. Um, his mother, Eunice, was a Jew and, and as was his grandmother, um, but his father was a Greek. And so he grew up in this kind of mixed family. Uh, he was brought up in the Jewish faith. We're told he was taught the scriptures from an early age. Um, most likely he first heard the gospel um, from Paul. Uh, on his first missionary journey, Paul stopped in Lystra and in Derby, uh, in that area. And, uh, and it seems that Timothy was saved and began uh, to become a disciple, followed Jesus. And, and then a few years later, as Paul came through to check on those churches that he had planted, uh, Timothy joins them. And Timothy goes with Paul and Silas to Philippi and to Thessalonica and Corinth and, and finishes that journey with them. Paul called Timothy his true child in the faith, his beloved son. And it blows my mind to think Timothy was with Paul for the writing of Romans and 2 Corinthians and Philippians and Colossians and First and Second Thessalonians and Philemon. Um, it's amazing, his experience. Uh, Paul had already sent Timothy to the church in Corinth uh, and then to the church in Thessalonica as his messenger on different occasions. And now Paul's sending him to, to Philippi. And Timothy was Paul's closest, most trusted fellow worker. But specifically for this situation, there are two characteristics, two things that Paul wanted Timothy, uh, wanted the Philippians to see in Timothy. And the first uh, is this genuine concern for the church. This genuine concern. Paul says, I have no one like him who's generally, genuinely concerned for your welfare. There, there's just nobody like Timothy in this regard. He's, he's unique in his genuine concern for the church. And in verse 21, then, he explains, um, they all seek their own interests, not the interests of Jesus Christ. And, and I love the, the switch he made there. Did you see it? Back in 
chapter 4, verse 2. He said, let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now he contrasts the interests of others, or sorry, the interests of self, not with others, but with the interests of Christ. So certainly this does apply to some degree to loving your neighbor, loving strangers. But specifically, the, the, the center of who this is talking about in the context, those who are one in spirit, those who are striving side, to side, side by side together in the gospel, it's the church. And not, not the, the church as the, the institutional church, whatever that would mean, um, but the people of the church, the body of the church gathered here. The church is the body of Christ. It's his beloved bride. And so to love the church is to love Christ. To seek not only your own interests, but the interests of the others in the church is to seek the interests of Christ. It's to serve and love Christ himself. And Timothy had this genuine concern for the welfare of the church. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Paul writes to the church in Corinth that there may be no division among the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's, that's genuine concern. This is so central to what it means to be the church. Um, this is something I think Beth and I find ourselves talking about often with couples in premarital counseling or whose marriages just aren't the way they wish they would be. Um, and I think it's so central to the church as well. We're on the same team, right? We're in this together. And so if my joy is your joy and your sorrow is my sorrow, how can there be division among us? How can we fight with one another? How can I try to gain from myself by taking from you? It doesn't make any sense if we're together in this. If my sin hurts you, I need to be aggressively against my sin, because it's hurt someone that I love. And if your sin hurts me, I have two options, right? I can be against you. I don't like that person. That person hurt me, and so now there's a, a wall between us. Or I can recognize that sin hurt both of us and hurt our relationship. And I love you, but, but we need to work together against this sin to find unity, to grow together. And that makes all the difference. If we're one, if we're united together, and obviously marriage is the most intimate example of that, but the church is no different. We're united in Christ. We're one body. We're together, members of one another. So we ought to have this genuine concern for others, a genuine concern that makes division impossible. There's nothing that can come between us. So, that's number one, Timothy's genuine concern for the church. And, and flowing out of that genuine concern then, uh, we see Timothy's humble service. Look at verses 22 to 24. Let me read them again to remind us. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Second characteristic in Timothy uh, is this humble service. Paul says, as a son 
with a father. He served alongside me. The word served there um, comes from the Greek word doulos. Um, It means slave. He was a slave alongside me. Now, because of verses like this, Timothy as a a son with a father, and there are other passages like that. Paul tells Timothy, don't don't let others look down on you because you're young. And, And we get it in our heads that Timothy was a little wet behind the ears. Like he was just a whippersnapper, kind of figuring things out. And and I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the right way to understand Timothy. We need to consider, as Paul says, his proven worth. He's already called a disciple when Paul meets him. Acts 16, verses 1 and 2. This is where Paul first is introduced to, to Timothy. He's already a disciple. He's already well-known in two cities, in Lystra and in Derby. He wasn't a kid. Um, he was a notable young man in the church, traveling between cities. And this letter now is written about 14 years later, and that's 14 years of experience alongside Paul. Remember the, the letters that have been written with Timothy, uh, maybe Paul speaking and Timothy writing. Remember the places they have gone, the churches they have planted together. And so there's a good chance Timothy is here in about his mid-30s, and his resume is impressive. This statement that he served as a son with his father uh, is not because he was young and and weak. It's a statement about his humility. This is a guy that could have easily gone off on his own and started a megachurch and and written books with his name on on the front cover, his face all over it. Side note, I've never seen a good Christian book with the author's face on the front of it. That's just a warning sign. That one's for free. Um, This is not a statement about his ability, but his humility. His willingness not to seek the limelight, not to go running after his own thing and, and run his own show. It could have been Timothy's church in Philippi, in Lystra, in Derby. He could have been the guy. But no, he was happy to serve with Paul to to humble himself, to set those things aside and take the role of a servant, a slave. Sound familiar? It's not that long ago. We were looking at chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be hung on to or used to his own advantage. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, a slave. Same word. Paul says, follow after Christ, who was in the form of God, but humbled himself and made himself as a a slave. Now look at Timothy. Here's how he did it. This is what it looks like in the life of, of an example for you. Timothy, impressive resume and all, saw himself as a humble slave of the gospel. That was his life. A slave doesn't work for his own notoriety, doesn't work to build up his own estate. He has nothing. He works for his master, just like a son working in daddy's business. Timothy was not driven by selfish ambition or conceit. It wasn't about gain. It wasn't about himself. He was a slave of the gospel. That was his life. Paul wanted the Philippians to see that that singular focus 
that their goal as they gathered together as the church, as they served one another and loved one another and bore one another's burdens, and even as they bumped into one another's sinfulness, that their goal would not be self-protection and selfish gain and selfish ambition, but they would see themselves as Timothy of slaves of the gospel, laying down their rights, laying down their lives for the glory of Christ and the good of the church, being willing, as Paul would say to the Corinthians, even to be wronged, even to be taken advantage of and letting unity rule in the church. That's Timothy, this genuine servant. What an example, this gospel-worthy life leading to unity in the church. And then Paul moves on to Epaphroditus, this loving risk-taker. Much less is known about Epaphroditus. We can tell he's Greek by his name. Um, we don't know much more about that than, uh, than that about his family or his history. Um, obviously, he was in the church in Philippi probably for some time. He was known there and trusted. They, they chose him as their representative to take what was probably a pretty large cash gift to Paul in, in uh, Rome. And it seems that they had sent uh, Epaphroditus to stay with Paul. Be our, our minister there to Paul on our behalf. You serve him, Paul's and in house arrest, he's in chains, and Epaphroditus could you know, go do the grocery shopping and, and take care of him and, and deliver letters and such things. But Paul has decided now to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi, carrying this letter. And so these verses are partly Paul just saying, here's, here's why, don't be angry at Epaphroditus for coming home, this is why I sent him to you. Um, but then obviously also, again, showing us who this Epaphroditus is, and he's telling them, honor this man. See these things, emulate them. Let me read uh, these verses, 25 through 30. I thought it necessary to send, you to, uh, to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So the church in Philippi had sent Epaphroditus with this gift to Paul, and Epaphroditus got life-threateningly ill at some point, possibly in the journey to Rome, maybe once he got there, we don't really know for sure. But somehow, uh, the church in Philippi heard about it, and they were concerned, and then word got back to Epaphroditus that they had heard that he was sick. And so, Epaphroditus is now concerned for them. He loves them. And, And I love the fact, as we get into knowing who Epaphroditus is as this example that he's a nobody. He's he's not that impressive. He was trusted in the church, certainly. But honestly, I think if we look at it, he was also somewhat expendable, wasn't he? Somebody they could afford to send away for a few months, maybe even years. Think about it. If Pastor Trevor was sick or in jail in, in our church in North Calgary, um, and we wanted to send somebody to, to care for him, um, you know, we're not sending Josh. We need Josh. 
Um, we, we, can't, we, we need to send somebody that we trust, somebody you know, that is honored, but, um, but somebody we can kind of do without for a little while. It's Epaphroditus. This is, this is not someone who could have gone off and started a mega church, written books with his face on the cover. And yet, the great apostle Paul calls him my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. How cool is that? What an amazing thing that this, this average, run-of-the-mill, but trustworthy servant of the Lord ended up with his name in Scripture as the fellow worker and fellow soldier with Paul. <clears throat> that gives me a lot of hope. You know, the Lord doesn't need the best and the brightest, right? He's not building a, a Navy SEAL team of the toughest of the tough and the best of the best. He's not, he's not looking for superstars. He, he doesn't need it. Now, certainly he does gift some with extraordinary gifts and use some in extraordinary ways. But so often, and I would even say the vast majority of the time, the Lord does his greatest work through average men and women with Moderate gifts. What a great hope. Even simple Epaphroditus can be this mighty tool in the hand of God. I think about this a lot. And, and one of the stories that often comes to my mind uh, is, is of a simple man in a church in England. Um, not a preacher. Probably an elder. Uh, best we can guess. Um, but because of a snowstorm, the pastor didn't show up one morning. And, uh, and so this man, untrained and unprepared, stepped up to the pulpit to preach. I just got to tell you, like, respect. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I preach every week. And, and, if, and if I showed up somewhere just kind of going to church and they said, oh, can you preach? No, <laughs> I'm not ready. But he was faithful. He stepped up and filled the pulpit. Um, let me tell you the rest of the story from the perspective of a, of a young man who happened to be there that morning. Uh, a young man who had decided um, to go and see a very famous preacher at a prominent church in London, and uh, he got caught by that same snowstorm and was not able to make it there. And these are his words. He writes, When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist church. And in that chapel, there might be a dozen or 15 people. That's small. That's, you got, how many remember the 15 people days here? Yeah, not more than 15 of you. Um, those are small days. We had 13 the one summer, and it's like, boy, do we just put on a pot of coffee? Or, um, not more than 12 or 15 people. And then I have to find my place again. The minister did not come that morning, snowed up, I suppose, and a poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. Praise the Lord. <laughs> the text was Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto me, and ye be saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce his words rightly, but it didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. And he began thus, just imagine with me this preacher fumbling his way through. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, 
Now what, it does not take a great deal of effort to look. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger, it's just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look, a child can look. But this is what the text says. And then it says, look unto me. I, he said in his broad Essex accent, many of ye are looking to yourselves, not, no use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourself. Then the good man followed up his text this way. Look unto me, I am sweating drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look to me, I am risen again. Look to me, I am ascended and sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. And when he had gotten about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes, he was at the length of his tether and he looked at me under the gallery And I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. And then he said, you, young man, look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to having remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit. (laughs) However, it was a good blow struck. And he continued, and you always will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, This moment you will be saved. Then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. And then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them all of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. What a story. What an amazing thing God did. And in that moment, that young man was saved. His life was radically changed by the gospel. And whoever that poor Methodist man was, not a preacher, a, a tailor or a shoemaker, something of that sort, but willing to stand up and just read God's word and proclaim it simply. History's forgotten him. We don't know who he is. No record of anything else he did in his entire life. But that young man sitting in the back of the church under the gallery, hiding in from the snow. His name was Charles Spurgeon, and he grew up to be one of the greatest preachers uh, England and possibly the world would ever know. Countless thousands came to Christ under his ministry. His books and sermons are still read today. I will never be a Charles Spurgeon. It's just not in the cards for me. I'm okay with that. I will be thrilled if the Lord lets me preach here the rest of my life. Maybe this gathering grows to 100, maybe 200, but I will never be a Charles Spurgeon. I might, however, be one of those unnamed men, not known beyond my immediate circle, an average man of moderate gifts through whom the Lord does something amazing. As we fumble our way through God's word together, maybe he takes that and works something marvelous in your heart. Maybe some of these kids that gather with us this morning will grow up to be mighty men of God and women of God and evangelists and preachers who knows what the Lord will do. But we do know that he can do it through simple, ordinary men and women. That's how he he does it. The vast majority of the work of the Lord will come by, by people whose names we won't know until eternity. 
and, and we get to be fellow soldiers, fellow workers alongside Apostle Paul. Ordinary men and women whom the Lord uses to do extraordinary things that, that we may never even see the fruit of. What an amazing hope there is in that. That we can bear the same title as Epaphroditus. What more could we want? Average men and women with moderate gifts through whom the Lord is glorified. So let's press on. Let's dig a little deeper. What made Epaphroditus, this fellow worker, this fellow soldier, what made him so useful in the hands of the Lord? Well, verse 26. Paul says of him, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. He loves the church. He's longing for them. They're burdened and it's causing him to be burdened. He's worried about them. And I love this. Epaphroditus is sick near death. And he's worried that they're worried about him, not about his own health. And so he's longing for them. It sounds like a, a young man separated from his new bride. He, his heart aches for them. What makes an ordinary man an extraordinary tool in the hand of the Lord? The love for the church. A love for his bride. And again, that sounds so nice and theoretical, right? I love the church. I love the bride of Christ. But you can't love the church without loving the people of the church. It's not enough to say I love the idea of the church. We need to love the flesh and bones of the church. The real people sitting around you, um, warts and flaws and all. He had this amazing love for the church. And secondly, that love for the church that Epaphroditus had naturally played out into this radical risking of his life for the church. Again, we're not sure what his illness was or exactly when it happened, but um, verse 30, Paul writes, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And that's what makes a lot of people think it was quite possibly on his journey to Rome with the gift that he got sick, completing what was lacking in their service. He's not bashing them. Uh, it had to be delivered. He, he was making the connection and, and getting ill on the way near death rather than giving up or going back. He pressed on. He risked his life in the service of Paul, in the service of his church in Philippi, but ultimately, as Paul defines it, in the service of the work of Christ. That word risking there, it's a full-on gambling term. This is a Vegas term. He, he risked it all. He went all in on Christ. What a glorious example. What a great thing to be able to say, Lord, I went all in for you. Put all my chips on Christ and let the cards fall. Epaphroditus wasn't holding back. Um, he, he's not going 70-30 for the Lord. I'm going to put most of it for the Lord, but I'm going to you know, keep back just a little bit in case that bet doesn't pay out. No way. He's going for broke everything for Christ. And that's the bottom line, isn't it? That's what following Jesus is. It's an all or nothing deal. Matthew 16, 24, and Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
take up your cross. We use that language kind of flippantly. Oh, that's his cross to bear. No, your cross to bear is death. That, that's what the cross is. It was, an, it was an implement of torture and death. Jesus said, you're going to follow me? It's everything. There are no sort of disciples of Christ. There's no kind of Christian. There's, there's no such thing. It's either everything in or you aren't actually following Jesus. So ask yourself, check your heart. Are you 70-30 in for Christ? Most of the way, I'll, I'll let him have a good portion. I'm going to hold back this little bit. That's for me. Are you a, a mostly Christian? Jesus is so clear. A half-hearted follower of him is no follower at all. It's all or nothing. But here's the thing, gambling on Jesus, giving up everything to follow him, it's no gamble at all. I know you're used to hearing from your friend who, who wants you to buy into his, his business that's definitely not a pyramid scheme and it's an absolute sure thing payout, um, but this is a sure thing. This is a sure bet. This is betting on God Almighty. It's betting on the one through whom the world was created who now says whoever loses his life for my sake, listen to the wording, will surely find it. Will surely have true life. The one of whom it is said, John 3.15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He calls us to trade pain, sorrow, emptiness of sin, leading to death for life, for life abundant, for life eternal. And the one who made that promise is the one who died and rose again and who is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He knows what he's talking about. He's played this game before. He rigged it. It's his. So how do you bet on him? What does that look like? Well, it looks like it looks like Timothy and Epaphroditus. It looks like following their example. Honor such men. Look at these examples. This genuine concern for the church, this humble service of others, the loving partnership of the gospel. That's the outcome. That's the evidence of it. That's the, the proof of it. But know that it starts at and is sustained by one simple act. Look to Christ. That's it. That's where Paul began. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though was in the form of God, didn't count equality to God, a thing to be grasped, but gave himself up, emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant to the point of death, even death on a cross. This whole thing falls under the heading still of 127. Live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. So he's saying, looking at, trusting in holding on to the gospel of Christ, live out of that. Looking at what Jesus has already done. Without Christ, not going to happen. Not a chance. You won't live this way. You won't do it. It's simply not who you are. It's not natural to us. It's like asking a fish to fly. Uh, if you work real hard, you might, you might pop out a couple times here and there. If you're one of those fancy flying fish, you might come out and glide for a little ways and, and people go, oh, look, it flies, but no, no, it just floats for a bit before it returns to the water. It's not in our DNA. You can't 
do it. And so if you're not trusting in Christ, if you've not looked to him and given yourself to him in full surrender, don't, don't even bother with this. Don't, don't, don't think, well, I need to love the church more. No, you don't. You need to look to Christ. You need to give yourself to him. Say, Jesus, I, I'm a sinner and needs a savior. I'm a fish and you've asked me to fly. I can't, can't do it. It's my favorite quote from John Bunyan. Run, John, run the gospel. Oh, now I'm going to lose it. Run, John, run the gospel demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. The, run, John, run the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. The gospel, far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Isn't amazing? That's the truth of the gospel. In Christ, if you look to him, if you've been changed by him and saved by him, he's taken out the heart of flesh and, and put in, or taken out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, and he's put his spirit within you. Now this is who you are. Now it's not a fish trying to fly. It's a, it's a fledgling eagle looking at his mighty father and, and emulating that. And yeah, he falls and sometimes he falls hard. But as his Feathers grow and his wings become strong. Flying becomes the most natural thing for him to do. Look to Christ. Trust in him. Keep your eyes on him. And with one eye always on Christ, then we receive with joy and honor such men like Timothy, like Epaphroditus, who are faithfully following after Christ. And like them, we risk it all. We give it all for the work of Christ, following that example of genuine concern, of humble service, true love for the church, risking everything boldly for him. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. And Lord, we just confess again our brokenness as humans. Lord, we are so quick to division. We are so quick um, to be against one another. Help us. Help us to live in the unity of the church as we ought to be. Lord, I pray for any here this morning who have not looked to Christ, who have not submitted themselves completely and fully to him, who have not come as sinners recognizing their need for a savior. God, that you would open their eyes even now that they might look to you, that they might trust in what you have accomplished for the forgiveness of sins, for the transformation of these broken lives. And Lord, for those of us who gather as your church here, as your body, one in spirit, standing side by side, God, help us. Help us to have that genuine concern for one another as we see in the example of Christ, as we see in the life of Paul, the life of Timothy, the life of Epaphroditus, God, that we would have this love for one another, this desire to serve you, to give our lives for the gospel in a way that would bring an unmatched unity here, a love amongst us, or that there may be no division, that as we sin against one another, as we inevitably will, that forgiveness would be quick, that we would see our brothers and sisters as members of our own body and the sin that divides us as our enemy. And God, help us to give everything for the work of Christ in his church, in this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.